I've uh, talked before about how I love story. Uh, I think that's why I incorporate it so much uh, when I preach. And I, in my personality profile in the Myers-Briggs, I, I am an INTP, which may mean nothing to a lot of you, but it means I love a good argument. <laughs> I love uh, the logical conclusion to a sound and valid syllogism. That gets me going, right? And for a lot of people, that doesn't do anything. But what I found to be universal is story. Because no matter how logical I am that I can ignore the, the feelings of these plebes, right? And I can think on a higher level. Story can penetrate deep into people and bring out the feels. And I think that's universal. It works, it works on me, and I think it works on everyone. And so I like to talk about that. But I'm going to show a little bit of my, my strange side here. Because I'm going to start out with a story. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> that means probably nothing to anybody in here. Uh, to, to some, it might, you, know, you might just think weird or, or like nerdish. So if, uh, basically, Dungeons & Dragons is a game where uh, people get together, they, they make up a character like, I am a, a dwarven warrior or something, and then one person in the group leads them on a story, and each person plays this character, and they act it out, they do the voice, and they say, okay, I'm going to run into the dungeon, I'm going to do this, or whatever, right? That's what they do. And if, if I saw a group of people in high school playing this in the library... I would, have, I would not have touched it. I would not even got close because too much was at stake, right? There was the cool factor. But I would have been secretly jealous because I love to play games and I love to act. I did drama all throughout high school. And so later in life when uh, I met a friend, his name is also Matt, uh, he played these games when he was growing up. And uh, not too long ago, he invited me to play a game like this. Not Dungeons and Dragons, but it's like it. It's the same concept, except you play more historical characters. And, you know, I'm, I'm married now. I have a kid, and I have zero regard for coolness. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'll play. I want to try this out. And he said, okay, but you got to make a character. It's got to be, you know historical, I'm like early Romish or before that. And this was a fun part for me. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, what character do I want to play? Maybe I'll find a, a historical character like some sort of nobleman who is attractive and charming and, and good at fighting. And I thought, no, that's already too much like me. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll find an inflexible priest who at every stop says, we must build an altar, burn incense, and pray. And then I thought, no, that's just going to slow the story way down. And so I said, you know, Samson, the biblical Samson, he is probably the strongest person in the Bible, right? That's a lot different than me. And he's not very smart. Uh, he was 
uh, duped by uh, Delilah uh, s- several times. Um, uh, raggedy. Um, and, and there's also another judge in the Bible named Shamgar. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And uh, Samson killed 1,000 Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. I thought, I'm going to kind of mix these together and I'm going to be Shamgar. <laughs> right? Shamgar. That's me. That's how we're talking it to <laughs> Right? And so it's sort of a, a deep Cockney accent, right? Totally would not have been how we talked. But <laughs> that's what I came up with. Uh, and I play uh, with a group of people. Vitus Valerius, a wise and masterful tactician. Right? That's Matt's character. Humorless, yet he finds everything curious. And then, of course, I play with Spurius as well, a nobleman. Very, very, very quick-tempered, but adept with sword. Not powerful, yet proficient. And then there's Gaius. Gaius is not a character you like. See, Gaius steals things. He's callous and greedy. But I can shoot a bow because I don't want to get close to you. Right. Those are my companions. And, and we go adventuring together every Friday night, and sometimes I just have to get up after we play and punch a pillow. Right? Because I have so much testosterone going, because I am, even if just for a brief moment, I am Shamgar. <laughs> right? And I know what it's like to be strong beyond imagination, to be fearless, and to go in without hesitation. Mostly because I'm stupid, (laughs) but also because I'm fearless. And it got me wondering. You know, we're talking about Emmanuel, God with us. The sermon series is the good news. It is, you, it is the greatest message of all time. There is nothing greater than the good news. And I thought if we could imagine, if we could just drop everything that we think we know about ourselves right now, and if we could imagine that we believe every single thing about the good news, we could, if we could just imagine that we believe everything that the Bible says about the magnitude, the profundity yet simplicity of the good news and what God did when he came down to live among us and die. If we believed everything about it, if we imagine ourselves as somebody different than who we are right now, then that should be our focus. Why are we different than who we imagine we ought to be? If we, we should pray as the father of the boy who was cleansed in the Bible of an evil spirit when he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because there is something in our lives that is preventing us from being like the person we ought to be. 
And so when I go uh, through the verse today and I, and I go through this message, there are two things I want you to think about. I want you to ask yourself these two things. First, ask yourself, if I believe this, what would I be like? And secondly, ask yourself, am I like this? Our character, our actions, these things are a product of our beliefs. And so with that said, uh, we're going to go to the passage, Isaiah 61, 1 through 8. Um, And I want to talk about God being with us. I want to talk about the good news. So it starts, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord, and you will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. As a a little background, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was starting uh, his ministry, he went to Nazareth, which was uh, his hometown, and he went uh, to the synagogue, and this, of course, is where he was raised, uh, and he reads. Uh, He reads the first part of the text we just read. He says, uh, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Um. Oh, I'm sorry, no, he doesn't say that. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me, and so on. Uh, and this, this would have been all well and good, except he does go on to say, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is claiming this Isaiah passage for himself. It's Jesus saying, this that I just read is me. I will set you free. I will establish an everlasting covenant. I will give you everlasting life. I will comfort you when you mourn. And the story ends up having uh, the Pharisees getting pretty angry about this uh, as Jesus is uh, claiming a lot of things about himself. And so they go and they try to uh, push him off a cliff. But Jesus is like, man, I have things to do. And he just kind of walks through him and gets out. Which It's kind of bizarre. Like they're about to push him off a cliff and it just says he walks through them. Like, okay. 
But what's instructive here is that this, this passage written 700 years before Jesus was even born, it points to a, a redemption from all the most horrible things in the world. And Jesus is saying, I am here now. I am here to set you free. And so in the, in the vein of what I, I talked about earlier, I want uh, to ask a few questions as my, my points throughout the sermon. The first being, do you believe that Jesus sets you free? In Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus claiming that for himself. To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. I want to introduce a little bit of media into this. I, I don't think we've done this before, uh, but I've seen it done and I liked it. Uh, so let's start with one of my all-time favorite clips of the iconic movie uh, Braveheart with the ever-controversial Mel Gibson as William Wallace, who is uh, trying to incite a Scottish rebellion against uh, English rule in about 13th century Scotland. Uh, so let's, let's run that. That is a motivational speech, and it makes me want to go out and fight for Scotland. But nearing the end, uh, William Wallace uh, says 
that, that famous line, that iconic line, he says, they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom. Dang, that is powerful. But what does it mean? I mean, let's parse this a little bit. I mean, what if I said it this way? They may pin us down, completely immobilize us, force our eyes open, and force feed us until we die. But they can never take our freedom. And I'd be like, now that sounds like exactly what taking someone's freedom would look like, right? So, I mean, they may t- take our lives. I mean, doesn't that just de facto mean that if you take my life, you take everything associated with it, namely the freedom? So, I mean, it, it stands to reason that freedom is being used in, in a more transcendent way, in a, a deeper and more profound way. You know, similarly, uh, Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of John, he declares uh, the famous line. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think, yeah, but the truth, the truth doesn't always set you free, does it? I, I remember a, a story at Costco, and I have to keep the details of this very limited. But um, someone, at some time, uh, came up to me and told me about, and they just said it really offhandedly, they told me about something that uh, another person said in upper management Uh, And what they said, this person in upper management, was really, really incredibly sexually inappropriate. It was bad. And me, being absolutely selfish, thought, why in the world would you tell me this? Right? I'm not saying this, but I'm thinking, come on. I I don't want to hear this, and I don't want to hear this because now I'm compelled I have a responsibility as someone in leadership, as someone in management, to, to say, you know, I have to report this. It was absolutely fundamentally inappropriate and never should have been said. I was compelled. I was captive now to the truth. And the truth shall set you free. See, but I had, I had to go and do something that I knew would be possibly career-ending for somebody. I had to take on a very difficult road. I was captive to it. And the truth shall set you free. So Jesus, too, is talking about something deeper, more profound. He's not talking about just material or emotional freedom. It was a freedom more transcendent, something beyond the immediate. It was something eternal. So in Isaiah, when it says, to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, 
To the original reader, this would have meant uh, either like a king's day where you get freed of debt uh, or you know, actual freedom from their captors. Um, but since Jesus is claiming for them, this for himself, and he says, I am the fulfillment of this now, we're probably thinking just like the, the, the Pharisees were thinking when Jesus claimed this for himself. See, they said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? I think us too, right? I don't know that any of us have been slaves to anyone. So saying that I'm going to set you free from your captors is really without effect, right? I mean, that doesn't mean anything to us if we have no captors. Well, Jesus clarifies more in John. In, in verse 34, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There. That's it. Everyone now is a slave. Everyone is a slave. That is the money. Jesus gives us freedom from the most pernicious thing of all, from sin and from death. So when Jesus comes and lives among us, he does not promise to free us from the feeling of financial stress and, and devastation or from disease or illness or from uh, feeling hopeless. Actually, sorry, I take that back. He does free us from being hopeless. That's about... That's about it. He frees us from being hopeless. But that's all that matters. We're not free from disease or hurt or pain or grief. But we're not hopeless. Without Jesus, there is grief, heartbreak, disease, disorder, syndromes of all kinds, illness, suffering, pain, and then there's death, and then there's more death. We can hope in our lives that we can just kind of be comfortable, that we can stay above water, that things just won't get worse. That's all we can ever hope for without Jesus. See, but with Jesus, we can always say things will get better. This is only temporary. All of the horrible things in your life will end, and all the great, best things you could ever imagine are amplified beyond imagination, and they're forever. That's hope. That's real. That is good news. He frees us from hopelessness. Sin and death has lost its sting. And everlasting life is ours. I, I remember uh, my, my father telling me something about his mother, my, my grandma, one time. She passed away. Uh, she had Alzheimer's. And um, it's, it's very, very tragic to have to see someone 
lose uh, their memories. It's one of the most tragic things I think I can, I can even imagine. But one of the things he told me about is that with his mother, there were songs that she would sing in church. She was a devout Catholic, and there were songs that she would sing that were hardwired somewhere deep inside of her that, that didn't leave her. And when you lose somebody that you love, the grief is real. The mourning is real. But I don't want to be free from that. And I don't think you do either. See, grief, how bad we can feel, is just a reminder of how good it was. The fact that we can feel so bad now means that what we had must have been really special. Grief gives us perspective. It allows us to value the people that we have in our lives. See, but what Jesus does, he doesn't save us from those feelings. He allows us to be able to say, see you later, instead of goodbye. He's allowed us to say, this will get better. This will end. This is temporary. And if we believe this, then in our relationships, in our financial struggles, in our illnesses, in our grief, we will be hopeful of something better. We will have peace in this situation when others really only have despair. And I think that is the fundamental difference of a person with good news and a person without it. Someone who has all of the same problems but has peace. And someone who has all of the same problems but only has despair. I think Jesus saves us from the worst thing of all, which is being hopeless. Which brings me to my second question, which is, do you believe that Jesus can bring you joy? In Isaiah 61, verse 3, it says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here we have Isaiah uh, declaring that the Lord is going to bring gladness instead of mourning. So when I put my son down to sleep, uh, I do it with a lot more efficacy than my wife. She's not very good at it, and she'll openly admit this. Um, and that's because I have a trick. When, when I uh, rock him to sleep, I, I have already positioned him in the absolutely perfect way 
so that when I put him down, there is like no shift in weight. Right? That's the trick. My wife will, will get him to fall asleep, but then when she puts him down, see, he, he is on the edge of, of being asleep and being awake, and he will wake up at any provocation because he doesn't want you to leave. He wants to cling to you and say, no, I can't sleep without you. You make me content. You make me happy. I need you right here. Come on. The trick is to make him feel like I've never left at all. And see, as, as adults, we don't, we don't like clinging, do we? We're kind of like, man, give me a breather, okay? Give me some room. <laughs> like, lay off. You are too much right now. <laughs> so it's of little wonder, actually, that Jesus says, you know what? I don't want you to be like adults. I want you to enter the kingdom of God like children. I want you to cling to me. I love clinging. I love it when you want me. I love it when you're not content without me. I love it when you can't sleep without me. I love it when all you think about is me and when you don't have me, you're crying. He loves clingy. So we have to reverse everything we've been taught as adults when it comes to how we look at Jesus. It's not, Jesus, I'm going to give you some breathing room. It's, I'm going to be all up in your face. I'm going to be drooling on your shoulder because I do not want to leave you. I want you to rock me to sleep. I want you to be my bedtime story. I want your words to be the last ones I hear before I close my eyes to sleep. And if I wake up and you're not there, I am going to be pretty mad. <laughs> That's Jesus. But the reality is that oftentimes in Christianity, we have a perverted understanding of what it is to be joyful with Jesus. We do look at it as adults. And, uh, you know, I remember a story at uh, Costco it was, um, she, this person was someone who was responsible for me getting a job at Costco. She did my interview. I really value uh, her. Um, I value her still. Um, but there was this one thing that happened where, um, you know, I said, hey, how are you? And she said, well, I'm getting a divorce. And I was kind of taken off guard because, you know, I have t talked with her about her husband and you know, it seemed like she had a great relationship, but, you know, as Christians, we do that. We, we put up a facade uh, until it just breaks, and so it's surprising sometimes. But she said, you know, I, I've just been sort of dissatisfied for a long, long time. I wasn't really feeling the love or the connection. And she said, I never, I never told him this. And so, as you can imagine, he was uh, angry, certainly taken off guard when I told him about this, and he, he wanted to work on it. You know, but at this point, I have just been feeling it for too long. There was nothing that he could do. It was too broken at this point. 
And she said, but I'm really worried about the kids. They have a handful of kids. I won't tell you how many. Uh, and she just said, it's been really hard on them. And she goes on to tell me about, you know, how her decision to get divorced wasn't because of any sort of infidelity or abuse or anything, but just really because she wasn't feeling it anymore. She just had this long-standing unhappiness that she didn't talk about until, in her mind, it was just too late. This was her only option in her mind. But what struck me as bizarre and, and quite frankly distorted was she said these words. She said, you know, I know God doesn't like divorce. And he doesn't like, you know, probably how I'm handling this. But I do know this. That God wants me to be happy. This cannot be the good news. This is not the good news. If we so thoroughly pervert the idea of joy, the joy that God gives to merely be what makes me happy is good and therefore what makes me unhappy is bad, then we have a distorted understanding of what it is to have joy through God. We are clinging to the wrong thing. We are not clinging to Jesus. See, we cling to the things that we love. And so we have to evaluate our lives and ask ourselves, what are we clinging to? Are we clinging to things that we love? Are we clinging to the only person who is love? And that's Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, why? if we're not clinging to Jesus. The person who came and lived with us and gave us the most important thing of all, he gave us everlasting life. He says, I will free you of hopelessness and you will have eternity with me. If we're not clinging to that, why? You know, I'm pretty sure that I've shared uh, this before. But it's worth sharing again. It's, it's about Charles Templeton, who was an evangelical minister. And he, he toured with Billy Graham. And, and later in his life, he lost his faith. And he did an interview with the author of A Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. And uh, just part of the interview I'm going to read uh, as recounted by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is asking, he says, And how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question. But I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke out of uh, Templeton. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable talking about an old and dear friend. 
His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflexive tone. Reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I have ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? Now remember, this, this man lost his faith. He's not a Christian. Lee Strobel says, I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes. He is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know Everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes. Yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most, he stopped, then stared again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. Imagine if we lost what we had with Jesus right now. If it went away, would we miss it? 
if we would, that's good. Cling to that. If not, then what are we clinging to? What are you clinging to? And will it make you happy? You must ask yourself that. So the last question, the sort of quintessential good news question, is do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Let me tell you about a story. So... I, uh, among my friends, was known as the good luck charm. You see, because we would do stupid things all of the time. See, but if I was there, we were okay. We seemed to escape the worst of things. And so one time, um, we decided to pretend we were kidnapping the kid and, and throw him in the yard of people we knew because that's funny, right? I, it's high school funny. So we uh, have the kid. We bind his hands and legs, ha-ha, and we put him in the bed of a truck, and we drive around to people's houses that we know. And... Uh, we would throw him in the front yard, we'd ring the doorbell, and then we'd run away and videotape from a distance to see the person kind of come out and be like. <laughs> you know, like, what is going on? And we're like, ha, ah, that's awesome, right? This is great. Let's keep doing it. So we, we're doing this and doing this, and then we get to a house where one of our friends says, I know, I know this person person. I know this house. I know who this is. Yeah. So we go and we put the kid in the lawn and we ring the doorbell and we run away. And immediately the question becomes, you know this person? You know who this is? Because this looks really bad. The person uh, is like, don't worry, I have a gun. <laughs> That's the first thing he says. Don't worry, I have a gun. So he gets on 911, he says, I can shoot him if I have to. <laughs> That's bad, right? Frankly, we were able to get the kid and, and, and be like, okay, we've escaped the worst of it, right? Well, I'm the good luck charm, don't worry. Nothing's going to happen. And so nothing has happened. And so they say, okay, we should just be done with this for today. That seems the wise thing. So they drop me off at home. 35 seconds later, they are surrounded by a SWAT team. <laughs> there is every single cop on, I think, the state level and definitely in Sherwood. Every single cop, you got canines, you got the sheriff, all around them, and they are on the pavement. And all they're hearing is, you are the stupidest person 
in the world. What were you thinking? So, I, you know, I am a good luck charm, I think. <laughs> I escaped the pavement. But the question that we now always ask before we do anything remarkably like that, or even remotely to it, you know what, we don't. We don't do that anymore. But if we did, we would ask ourselves, do I really know this person? Do I really? So, when I say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, you, you actually may be wondering, come on, Matt, you're stretching the text here. Right? It doesn't say anything about a personal relationship with the Lord in Isaiah. Some of you, probably none of you, are actually thinking that. But that's what you use for transition. And if we look at Isaiah, uh, just the first part of verse 6, it says, but you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. See, that's really interesting. Because for the original readers, this would have been one of the most profound things to say. One of the most fantastic notions, one of the best divine instantiations, because what he's saying is there will no longer be a middleman. You know how you would have to go to a priest and say, I really want this from God, man. Can you, you know, talk to the big man for me? It's saying, I am here now, and you can come to me. See, a lot of us would be like, I don't want to be like the priest, right? I mean, there's a lot of flack happening for the Catholic Church right now, and I don't want to be like a priest. See, but we have to think like the original reader. It's not saying that you're going to wear the garb of a priest and that you're going to make sacrifices on an altar now. It's saying you can go straight to Jesus when you pray, you are speaking to Jesus. There is no middleman. Your relationship is not going through another person. It is directly with the Lord. That is awesome. The original readers would have said, thank goodness. I can talk to the Lord. See, I... I remember my father conveying this message to me one way when he was talking about God. He said, God doesn't love you. That's exactly what he did. God doesn't love you, right? And you're thinking, okay. It's this sort of deep, distant, sort of mysterious love. And he said, God likes you. God wants to spend time with you. If we can just start saying that God really likes me, that's pretty dang personal. God loves us. Gosh, but he likes us too. He by saying that you will be like priests, he is inviting you into the room and he is saying, come talk to me. 
He inviting you into his home and says, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. Let's talk. Let's be with one another. And let me try to illustrate this a bit. Um, because a personal relationship can get kind of weird. I mean, if I have a relative, uh, a sibling, I have a sibling here, I am going to make one up because... Um, imagine that I just have a sibling, uh, and we would say that's a personal relationship, right? But what, what if I never spoke to this sibling? It's been 20 years, and this sibling doesn't want to have a relationship with me either, right? In the broadest sense, is that a personal relationship? I think we have to say that it is. See, personal relationship allows for a unidirectional, a one-way relationship whereby just one individual or person has a relationship with an object or even an idea, an image, a fantasy, a mental construct, or even a dead person. A personal relationship also allows for a relationship uh, of two people that's just merely contractual or only biological. See, but it also allows for the idea of a dynamic relationship, an interrelatedness, an experiential relationship between two people that uh, involves subjective interactions. It's a person-to-person -person relationship. It's a uh, connection, an interaction, and, and this might be better termed as interpersonal. See, I have an interpersonal relationship with Chad. Uh, we communicate, we're friends, uh, we communicate very poorly on social media, but we do attempt it. Um, he, he is worse than me. Um, and it's even better because he and I are Christians. So we connect also on a spiritual level that I couldn't have with one of my non-Christian friends. We can have uh, fellowship and communion with one another. So we are on an even deeper interpersonal level. And then there's the relationship I have with my wife. My wife is a good Christian one. We connect on possibly the, the deepest way imaginable. There is an interrelatedness. There is a knowing. In that marriage relationship, in that interrelatedness, it is remarkably intimate and interpersonal. And it's of little wonder then that the Apostle Paul likens the relationship that we have with Jesus to the marriage relationship. It is intimate. It is personable. It is knowing on the deepest possible level. We share everything. There is a nakedness to it that bears all and says, this is who I am. You know me. You know everything about me. That's the relationship that we should have with Jesus. In a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
It can't just be a mental ascent to a historical Jesus. It's not just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as a sort of uh, ideological relationship with these circumstantial things that the New Testament says. Because is it even possible to have a personal relationship, that deeper relationship that I'm talking about, with a historical person, a personage that lived hundreds of years ago? Is it possible just to have a relationship with a logical construct in this way? And I think we have to say no. An interpersonal relationship with Jesus Christ necessitates an experiential, interactive relationship that involves a oneness, a union, a commonality in identity. It necessitates the recognition that the Jesus of history, who walked in Palestine 1,900 years ago, is still a living person today. That is the message of the Christian gospel. That Jesus lived, he was crucified on the cross, he was raised from the dead in the resurrection. He ascended to God the Father, he was poured out and made available to us in spiritual form. The Spirit of Christ in Romans 5, 9 in order to indwell the spirits of persons in every age. He wants to become one with them in spiritual union and become the basis of our new spiritual identity. That is the message of Jesus Christ. I want to know you in the most personal way imaginable because I am living now and I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to be with you and be close with you. That is the good news. So a desperate frog calls a hotline. Psychic hotline, of course, because what else would frogs do? And he wants to know if he'll meet anybody because he is very lonely. And the psychic says, well, you know what? You'll actually meet a beautiful young woman who will find you very interesting and who will want to know all about you. And the frog is like, yes, this is exactly what I want. I mean, where will I meet her? Will I meet her, you know, at a party? Will I meet her at church? I mean, where am I going to meet her? And the psychic says, no, you'll meet her in biology class. <laughs> See, the relationship we can have as Christians with Jesus is not one of dissection. It is not one way. We don't just dissect the words of Christ. Not dissection. It's one of affection. Any personal relationship we have with Jesus should start with us evaluating whether or not we love him. Because part and parcel of the good news is our freedom to live 
with Jesus. The only one who offers us freedom, who offers us true joy, and who offers us everlasting life. That is our freedom. That is our joy. That is the relationship that we should have. That is the good news. Do you believe it? Will you pray with me? God, I just thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share this message. God, there is no greater message than the good news that you came and lived among us because you loved us so much, that you liked us so much. You died so that we could live. You rose again, but you did not leave us. You are living today, God, and you desire us to live in relationship with you. You offer us, offer us freedom, you offer us joy, you offer us relationship, and I pray, God, that we would take it, that we would live in it, that we would cling to it and want only that for our lives, that we can't sleep without it, God, that we can't be content without it. I want that. God, I believe that and help me in all areas that I have unbelief. I want to cling to you, God. I want to be in relationship with you, God, and I just pray that everyone here today would want the same. We love you so much, and we thank you. Thank you for all that you've done in your precious and holy name. Amen.